You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Building projects require a blueprint, a picture of the finished product, something to consistently reference during construction, a goal to work towards, a guide to follow. But what is the blueprint for the church? What picture is the reference for God's people? What is the guide for the Christian life? Jesus promises to build his church, but how? The blueprint for the church isn't a list of policies and procedures. It's not a plan for elaborate sanctuaries and classrooms, and it's not tips and tricks for increasing church attendance and budget. The blueprint for the church is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, who is equal to God. Jesus, who became a servant. Jesus, who died a sinner's death, though he was innocent. Jesus, who God resurrected and highly exalted. Jesus, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, he is Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a picture of humility and glory, a cross and a crown, sacrifice and exaltation, and it is the finished work Paul points to in the letter to the Philippians. It's the picture he looks to as he lives his life. It's the reference the Philippians followed to shape their church. The gospel is the blueprint we have to live our lives and build Christ's church. Morning. Welcome. Thanks for being here on this warm, sunny 4th of July weekend. Hey, on the youth stuff, just a little bit more behind the scenes of kind of what we're doing with these events. So we've recognized in uh, here at GCC that uh, we've had a need for some kind of youth ministry. We have lots of families with kids in middle school and high school, and we just haven't really had much of anything uh, for the last several years to serve families in that way. And so our desire, our hope going forward long-term is to have some kind of more well-established youth ministry. And so the goal would be in the fall uh, to have some kind of more regular gatherings for high school and middle school students. But this summer, since that's what we're moving towards, we want to at least start building relationships, uh, have some fun, uh, start making connections with some key leaders in the church and making connections among high schoolers and middle schoolers as well. So the goal is to have these events this summer, uh, one a month for high school students to get to know one another, uh, have some fun, get to know some other people in the church, and then hopefully that will push us into the fall to do some kind of more regular gathering. So if you're a high school student, hope to see you there. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun. Like DC said, this first one's going to be a river float at the Larson's house, uh, just a short float, and then a barbecue after that. Uh, it is BYOFD bring your own flotation device, uh, or uh, and extras. If you have more, bring those as well. And bring your friends. Uh, it'd be a lot of fun. And then we'll do some others, one more in August and one in September. Details on those will come. Uh, we're going to continue our series in Philippians. Also, I apologize for the throat clearing. Family's been a little sick this week, and so uh, you'll have to suffer through the, the mucus that I'm suffering through right now with me. Philippians chapter 2. We, we've been working through the book of Philippians. We finished chapter 1 last week. We're going to pick up chapter 2 this week. Uh, We're going to cover Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and then we're going to come back next week and look more in depth at 5 through 11, but we're going to touch on it this week. So I'm going to read this passage, then I'll pray. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, 
any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for humbling yourself and taking on a human form, being born in our likeness, being born as a man, uh, becoming a servant and, and coming to this earth to serve us, humbling yourself by becoming obedient to the point of death and death on a cross. We are so undeserving uh, of a majestic, glorious, holy God lowering himself to our level to save us from our sins against you. And yet that's exactly what you've done. And we gather here this morning, we come together uh, as a, a group of people, a church, a community that has been united together in you, Jesus, because of your humility and because of your service. And so what we then do in light of that is humble ourselves before one another and serve one another. And that's what we're going to see in this text today. And I pray uh, that this would not stop in our heads as an understanding of what it looks like to serve and, and be humble before one another, but that you would actually permeate our lives and our church with this kind of humble service, that you would make us a community of people uh, that loves one another well, that serves one another well, that's willing to sacrifice our own comforts and conveniences for one another. Uh, Jesus, help us to look to you for this. Help us to look to you um, for the motivation to do this, the model of how to do this, and, and for ultimately the power uh, that we need um, that comes from outside of ourselves, comes from you to, to do this kind of thing. God, help me to speak clearly for that these words would be your words and that uh, we would all get a, a greater understanding and grow in our love for, for you, Jesus, because of what you've done for us. Praise things in your name. Amen. There's an old uh, fable, I think it's attributed to Aesop, but there's a couple other people who've said something similar. It's the fable or the story of the lion and three bulls. And it's this really simple story uh, that communicates kind of a timeless truth that we're all familiar with. There's a field, and there's three bulls, and they're all friends with one another. And then there's a lion that kind of prowls around the field and is hungry and wants to eat the bulls. He likes beef. And so, uh, the, but every time the lion attacks the bulls, they get back to back and then use their horns to fend off the lion. And so he can't, he can't take any of them out. So the lion changes his tactics and starts whispering to each of the bulls individually things about the other ones. So he starts telling them little lies and telling them little things that maybe the other bulls said. And eventually it starts to cause division and disunity amongst the friends. They start quarreling and fighting with one another. That quarreling and fighting eventually turns to hatred, and then they go their separate ways. And so then they eat in the field at separate corners of the field away from each other because there's so much hatred, hatred towards one another. And one by one, the lion can pick off the bulls, and he gets his, his hamburger. 
Uh, it's a, it's a, you can see where this story was going as soon as I started it. It communicates this truth or, or this, this uh, kind of axiom that, um, <clears throat> that we're all familiar with. United we stand, divided we fall. You've heard this probably in a variety of places. Some of our founding fathers use this in writings and songs. It's been in presidential speeches. Um, Tupac sings about it. Uh, so does Taylor Swift and Pink Floyd. It's been in a variety of other songs, but on the list on Wikipedia, I didn't recognize any of the artists, so I figured you wouldn't either. Uh, it's the state motto of Kentucky. United we stand, divided we fall. Uh, in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, a different version of this phrase is used. And then in the advertising for Captain America Civil War and all the trailers to that, it's a line that's repeated throughout those. Jesus himself even says something similar when the Pharisees are attributing, he, Jesus has been casting out demons and the Pharisees attribute this power to Satan. They say he must be casting out demons by the power of Satan. Jesus reads their minds and says he can discern what they're thinking and says, a house divided against itself will not stand. A kingdom divided against itself will be laid to waste. And so it's this idea that I think we're all familiar with uh, that goes back for a long time. Jesus, Jesus talked about it. We hear it in all of these different places. United we stand, divided we fall. I think we would agree uh, that this is a good thing to pursue unity. In this passage, Paul is going to kind of circle back to what we talked about last week. Last week, we talked about a, a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it look like to live a life worthy of Christ, worthy of the gospel? And ultimately, it's a life of steadfastness, a life where we are standing firm in the face of suffering and opposition. And we touched on the piece of that last week, uh, that we do that together. We do that in the context of community. We do that when we're united. And that's what Paul's going to circle back to in this passage and go a little bit deeper into this kind of unity. And so where last week we saw that a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is a life of steadfastness, we're going to see this week that a life worthy of the gospel is still a life of steadfastness, but it's also a life of unity. That a church that is living a life in a manner that, that attributes worth to the gospel is a church that is unified. Now, unity is a difficult thing to achieve. And it's, it, it, I think I at least get discouraged when I think about the concept of unity and then look out at the world around us. Even within the church, we see church divisions and splits and people leave the faith. In uh, our world, we see political division and we have divisions in our families and in our marriages. Unity is kind of this, this ideal that we would love to see and yet the reality is, is it's not often there. And nevertheless, it's necessary. This is what Paul is going to command the church in Philippi, and it's a command for us as well to be unified, to be united. And so it is possible, but how? How is this unity possible? Ian mentioned it earlier. It's all throughout this text. Unity is possible through humility. So that's the, the main point of this text. It's the main point of the sermon this morning, that unity is achieved through humility. Unity through humility. There's three kind of sections in this text, and, and we'll work through each of these uh, one at a time. First, we have our motivation for unity. Then we have the mandate for unity. And then we have the model of Christ and his humility uh, for, for our humility. So motivation, mandate, and model. We'll work through those one at a time. We'll start with the motivation. Verse 1, look at that again. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. 
The first word there, so, could also be therefore, and it takes us back to what came before. Verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And now he's, he's picking back up on that and saying a worthy life is a life of unity. <clears throat> then he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Uh, this if is not like a, it's like a rhetorical if. So you could replace the word if with the word since. These things are true. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since there is participation in the spirit, affection, and sympathy, and then he goes on. It's really important here that to, to notice something that Paul does often in his writings. And he always follows up, or he always precedes imperatives with indicatives. Let me explain what I mean. An imperative is a command, an indicative is a statement of truth, a fact. And Paul always starts with indicatives, truth statements, facts about who we are in Christ, about what Christ has done, about, about who God is, and then moves on to imperatives. And this is the, the Christian life. If we just stuck with imperatives, if we just started with go do X, Y, Z, read your Bible and pray and love one another and serve one another without any kind of foundational truth about who we've been made in Christ, then we're going to run ourselves into the ground and, and run out of steam and either end up with despair because we can't do the things that we're trying to do or pride because we're doing them under our own power. <clears throat> we need first indicatives. We need truth. We need to be told who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ that then fuels us to go do the things we've com been commanded to do. And this is what Paul is doing here. We're given four indicatives, four truths, four things that we have because we are in Christ that then propel and motivate us to go and be unified. <clears throat> The first thing he says is encouragement in Christ. So if you have been, have you, if you have placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and adoption into his family, you have been united to him. You are in Christ. Union with Christ, uh, Paul talks about it all the time in the New Testament. We are one with Christ. And if you are in Christ, you cannot be brought out of Christ. And so because of that, there is incredible, great encouragement. Whatever comes in this life, whatever difficulties, whatever afflictions, whatever suffering or trials or tribulations, nothing can separate you from Christ. Nothing can remove you, or remove you from him, pull you out of Christ. And so there is great encouragement in Christ Jesus. He moves on to say, there's comfort from love. There's incredible comfort for us in our lives because of God's love for us. God's disposition towards us is one of joy, one of satisfaction, approval. He has unconditional and eternal love for us, and there's nothing that can change his view of you. And that provides com comfort, great comfort, a comfort unlike anything else in this life that this life can provide. So we have encouragement in Christ. We have comfort from God's love, and it says participation in the Spirit. <clears throat> the, the word participation here is where we get the word fellowship. And so we have fellowship with God in Christ through the Spirit. Jesus talks about this in John, in his prayers to God, his high priestly prayers, how we have become one with Christ, and therefore we are now one with God. We, we get to participate in the fellowship and relationship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because we're united to Christ. And so we have relationship, fellowship, participation with God himself by nature of being in Christ. And then lastly, he says affection and sympathy. 
Affection is like a, it's, a, it's compassion. It's actually the Greek word for guts or, or like bowels, which is really interesting. Uh, in our modern con- concept of emotions, the seat of our emotions is our heart, right? So if you feel something, you're feeling it with your heart. And the Greek mind, the, the seat of the emotions would have been your guts, right? If you feel something, it, you kind of feel it in your stomach. And so they made the connection. That must be where your emotions come from. And so it's this affection is this deep gut level like you feel it within you, compassion for people. And then sympathy is the acting out of that compassion. It's acting out of that with mercy, sympathy, with care and concern. Uh, these words are used of Christ in his ministry all the time throughout the Gospels. When Jesus looks at people who are broken or hurting or in need of healing or, or, or demon-possessed, it says that he has compassion on them. He's moved with, with uh, affection, or, or pity would be another word. This is the kind of feeling that Jesus has. When, when, when Jesus looks out at the crowds, he says they're like sheep without a shepherd, and it says he has great compassion for them. But it doesn't stop at a feeling for Jesus. He then moves towards people out of this compassion and extends mercy. He heals, he feeds, he saves. <clears throat> And ultimately, his mercy leads him to the cross, where that compassion is fully realized, and he saves people from their sin. So these are all of the things that we have. There's more. This is the list Paul includes here in this text of what we have in Christ Jesus. If you have believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and trusted in him for your salvation, then you have great encouragement by being in Christ. There is comfort from God's love. You have fellowship with God through the Spirit, and God has showed compassion and mercy on you in sending Christ to save you. Now, this is the motivation. We recognize all that we have in Christ, but then notice these are also things that we can extend to one another. So we have received encouragement in Christ, and so those of our brothers and sisters who are also in Christ, we extend encouragement to We've received comfort from God's love, and so in the same way, we comfort other people with love. We have fellowship with God through the Spirit, and so we engage in fellowship and participation and community with one another. And with the same affection and sympathy that Christ has shown us, we have that same towards one another. We feel deeply compassionate affection towards our brothers and sisters in Christ and then move towards them in mercy to help those who are hurting and to supply those who have need. This is our motivation. Now we move to the mandate. So because these things are true in you, be unified. Verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Uh, It's worth noting, small point here, Paul says, Complete my joy. Paul's in prison. He's facing execution. Uh, he, has, he lacks resources so much so that the Philippians needed to send some to him. And he says, my joy will be complete if the church in Philippi is united, is unified. Paul here is an example of the kind of attitude that he's asking for the people he's writing to, that his own joy is not dependent upon his circumstances, his interests, his desires, his comfort, his convenience, but on the good of someone else. Paul's own joy will be completed, meaning he doesn't need anything else in his life to, to satisfy, to fill up the cup of joy other than the unity in the Philippian church. So what kind of concern do we have for unity in the church? Does it bother us when there's grumbling or quarrels or division or disunity in the church? 
Are we concerned about the, the love that exists between brothers and sisters in Christ so much so that it would complete our joy if the church was unified? I think that's the kind of attitude that Paul is putting on display here that we need to have when thinking about unity in the church. So his joy will be complete if, it says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He describes this unity in three phrases. So first he says, being of the same mind. This isn't thinking the same things. We don't have to all have the same preferences, same favorite foods, favorite sports teams, those kinds of things. Rather, it's, it's thinking in the same way, being like-minded, having a, a, a similar thought process when considering life's big questions. We have a shared worldview or, or the same lens that we see the world through. As Christians, we have a shared theology. Theology is just thoughts on God, thoughts about God. And there, it's, it's, it's the, the truth that, we have, uh, that the church has agreed upon because of what Scripture has said that we share in common, and it shapes our worldview. It's things like the inspiration and authority of Scripture, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the divinity and humanity of Jesus, the sinfulness of man, these types of theological truths are, are what make up the intellectual framework that Christians see the world through, that we, that we walk through life in. Shared worldview, shared truths, and they govern and dictate how we think things. This is what Paul's getting at when he says, have the same mind. We think the same way. We're like-minded in how we approach the world because our worldview is the same. And then he says the same love. So now we're moving from our head, what we think and how we see, to our heart what we feel. So you have the same love because all of your, your, everyone's passion and desire in life is to love God and love our neighbor. Our, our love, our, our, where our passions, our desires are moving towards as the body of Christ is towards God and towards others. We recognize that we've all first received the love of God in Christ. We share in that love together, but then we extend that same love to one another. So we're thinking in the same way, we have the same thought process. We're also feeling the same things. Our, our desires are the same because of uh, a unity that we have in Christ. And then he says, being in full accord and of one mind. So two words here that are paired together. Full accord is like one spirit or soul. So it's a, uh, like a unity of soul. And then one mind, he repeats the mind from earlier. But the point is he's getting at is that you're, you're existing as one person. Kind of like what we talked about last week, that striving side by side. It's a group of people that moves together as one. There's a, a deep connection between brothers and sisters in Christ, between those united in Christ that encompasses our whole being, not just our thoughts, not just our emotions, but also our volition, our will, what we do. We're all moving in the same direction. We have the same purpose in life. Our purpose is to glorify God and to make much of Christ and we all share that together. And, and so, so the, the picture of unity that Paul's painting here, I think is a really beautiful one, where a group of people with different backgrounds, different interests, different preferences, come together as one, thinking the same way, loving the same things, and, and working together in unity for the same goal, for the same purpose. It's a comprehensive picture that includes all of who we are all of us acknowledging Jesus as Lord and then striving together to live under his lordship. 
Uh, this, it's a kind of community, it's a kind of unity that we all long for, and every other group tries to create or have. So, so, so think of some other group or community that you're a part of and the kind of unity that you hope exists there, whether it be CrossFit or the country club, some kind of activist group or a, 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 a project team, a team uh, that's working on a project at work or a sports team, whatever it might be, you gather people together with maybe similar interests or maybe a common goal uh, or maybe a similar background or a similar lifestyle. But all of these things fall short because at the end of the day, there's not one solid common thread that runs to the core of everyone in that group. There's a difference between gathering people together who have, a sh have shared interests and then gathering people together who have a shared identity and a shared purpose. In Christ, we've been given a new identity and a new purpose. And it's the same for everyone. If you're in Christ, you're a saint. You're a holy one. You're loved and cherished. You're a beloved son or daughter of God, and nothing can change that. You also have been given a purpose. Your life is ultimately about bringing glory to God's name through your love for the saints and your proclamation of the gospel. That's what our life is all about. And we do a lot of other great things in the meantime, but we do all of those under the umbrella of glorifying God through love and proclaiming the gospel. No other community, no other group can provide the same kind of thing where our identity and our purpose is the same. It's united. And so people come and go as interests change, as preferences change. This doesn't happen and it shouldn't happen in the church because of the kind of unity provided in Christ. Now, this is a beautiful picture. It's an ideal, but it's difficult to come by. Because like I just said, <laughs> it, it should happen in the church. It doesn't always happen in the church. Churches split. Denominations divide. People leave. And so how do we achieve this kind of unity? How do we actually get at this, this one person, this shared love, shared thought, shared action, shared motivation? It's through humility. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So how do we get at this? Well, there's the first thing that we don't do. There's the negative. And that's don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. So don't do anything with your own glory as your motivation. Don't do anything in a way that it serves to advance your name, your reputation, the way people view you. Don't do anything with the intention of uh, gaining a step on anyone or getting ahead or getting people to notice or approve of you. Don't do anything in a way that, that pursues your fame or prestige or your glory. Unity will not happen if every individual in this room is more concerned about their own glory than the glory of God. It won't happen if everyone in this room is concerned about our own needs and desires rather than the needs and desires of the people sitting around us. So if, if unity comes through humility, then the cause of disunity is going to be pride. Pride is thinking too highly or too much of ourselves. It's seeing the world revolve around us and everyone and everything in it existing to serve and satisfy our needs. Everything in our life serves to cater to what we want, what we desire, and then the church becomes no different. 
We show up expecting everyone and everything, the music, the preaching, the announcements, uh, the conversations, the coffee, the snacks, to be just the way we like it in our preferences and our desires because the, the main character on a Sunday morning is me. The main person that should be served is me. And this doesn't happen in the church, just simply in the church. It happens in marriages. It happens in families and in friendships. It happens in the workplace. Because at the core, our human sinful condition is thinking we are God. And we are worthy of the same kind of authority and glory that only God deserves. And when we have a kind of attitude that places us at the center of everyone else's life, that places us even at the center of our own life, and we expect everyone else to serve and satisfy us, unity will not happen. On the contrary, when unity will happen is when in humility we count others as more significant than ourselves. And when we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, this isn't saying we neglect our own needs because we should view ourselves as like worthless scum or anything like that. It says, look not only to your own interests, so still consider your own interests, but not only your own interests. Look also to the interests of others. The, the idea here is a prioritization of the needs of others over our own. It, it's a willingness to sacrifice our own comfort, our own convenience, our own desires, our own goals for the good of others. And all of this is done in humility. Humility is a humility is rooted in or comes from a right view of God and a right view of ourselves. When we rightly understand that God is the creator, we are the creation. That God is holy and we are sinful. That, that we are deserving of death, yet God has resurrected and raised us to new life. When we can recognize the bigness and holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, of ourselves, and then see the, the massive separation between those two things, we recognize there's no room for pride at the foot of the cross. When we all come to the cross, we all come humble and broken. It's not a, a, like a comparison game of seeing who's a worse sinner or who's maybe a better, anything like this. It's all looking at Jesus, falling to our knees, and accepting the grace and mercy we don't deserve. An author used an illustration that's helpful one time. I've maybe even used it before. But um, when, when two people stand before Mount Everest, they don't look at one another and compare how tall they are and see who's like an inch or two taller. They look at Mount Everest and they say, whoa, that mountain is massive and I am tiny. And the same thing when we come to Jesus, when we come to the foot of the cross, it's not a comparison game looking left and right. We look up at how big and majestic and, and mighty our God is and how gracious and merciful he's been to come down to us to save us. And if we all recognize and believe that in the context of the church where that kind of attitude should exist, then it becomes easy to, not, to, to prioritize the needs of one another, to sacrifice and serve one another in love. Uh, I could give some examples of hypothetically what this might look like, but I think instead uh, I'm going to give examples in our church family of what it does look like. And I'm going to say names and make people uncomfortable. So I think this looks like the Wheelers, Ian and Meredith, who week in and week out show up to church early with their kids. Meredith's basically nine months pregnant. I think she's eight months pregnant. With Laney and Monty in tow, and they set up the kids' ministry. Ian leads us in worship. They set up the stage. Never ask for any kind of thanks or appreciation. 
not for their own glory, but they humbly and willingly and joyfully serve our church family to provide worship, music for us to sing along with, and a safe and comfortable place for our kids to go learn about Jesus. Uh, it's people like Nick Morris, who's been drumming for us, who uh, I was told has been practicing like crazy at home on his own to grow in his skills as a drummer who's used his own money and resources to purchase a worship course that he's been going through to help him hone his craft to provide for us a beat so that we're not like all those other churches that can't clap, right? That's good. Uh, there's, uh, I asked Mary, I was like, who are people in kids' ministry that stand out to you? And she's like, there's so many, I can't name them all. And so a few examples, Hannah Stamp, who serves faithfully and joyfully in kids' ministry week in and week out. Patrick and Laura Pearson do the same. Chad and Haley Reeves and Daniel and Tiana Millard have little kids in kids' ministry and are on a regular rotation to serve in the kids' ministry. It's people like the hirons who open up their home and hospitality to let people into their lives. It's people like DJ and Renee Larson who faithfully meet up with men and women in the church to remind them of the gospel, to pray for them, to love them, to buy them coffee and lunch and pour into their lives. I could go on with a whole big giant list of things that I know people are doing, and then we could probably go on for a while with a list of things that I don't even know about, that I'm not aware of. Uh, this isn't, I was thinking about this before on, like, on my walk over here. I don't want this sermon to come across as scolding, like GCC is divided and we need to be unified. It's actually really enjoyable to preach on this topic because I think this kind of unity and humility exists in our church family. And I'm super thankful for that. I, I praise God for the displays of humility that we get to see week in and week out at our church family. That doesn't mean we take the foot off the gas. It just means we press it on further. The only time the Bible talks about being competitive is to outdo one another with showing honor. And so these people are great examples of humility. Be more humble than them. I don't know if that's a good <laughs> preaching point or not, but um, <clears throat> might regret that one later. Uh, the common theme in each of these stories and examples of people in our church family who do this well is that none of them are pursuing their own glory. It's not out of selfish ambition or conceit. None of them want accolades or praise, and I guarantee each of them squirmed in their seat when I said their name. That's a sign that they don't want people to know who they are or what they do. They just want to serve. They're willing to give up their own desires, their own preferences, their own comforts, time with their family, driving in the same car to church, listening to a sermon with your spouse rather than just going and spending time with the kids that you brought to church anyway. They're willing to do these things joyfully at a cost to themselves because they love us. They love you. They recognize how much they have been loved by Christ and served by him, and they extend that same love and service to each of us. This is the kind of humility that unifies a church. This is the kind of humility that creates deep bonds within a community. When we humble ourselves before God and then one another and consider every time we walk into church, how can I serve and not be served? How can I lay aside my desires and preferences in order to lift up and benefit everyone else who's here? So that's the mandate. We've got a, done our motivation, the mandate, unity through humility, and now the model. We'll read verses 5 through 11. Have this mind, this mind of unity through humility, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ was God, is God, creator of the heavens and the earth, deserving of glory, majesty, praise, honor, but didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped and rather emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and was born as a human, a God worthy of praise, a God worthy of glory, had his diapers changed and his nose wiped by human parents who he created. And he grew up to serve the people who have rejected him and rebelled against him. There's no like comparison to this. Ian said it's hard to wrap our minds around this, and I think that's absolutely true. But Imagine in like a fraction of a way the, the distance and not like actual miles of distance, the distance that Jesus traveled from glorious God in heaven to humble servant man on earth is like, like a mighty king in our world choosing to become an ant or something like that. It's that distance and then even more that Jesus would empty himself and become a human and take on human flesh and become needy and dependent and experience pain and sadness and frustration and hunger and fatigue, things that he, he doesn't need to experience. He's God, but did so willingly. And then it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And even death on a cross, not a noble death, not a warrior's death, not a king's death, not a death that was celebrated, he didn't have a, like a, uh, oh, what's it called when you drive, uh, motorcade? Motorcade. Like a, uh, there was not a big procession at Jesus' death. It was a humiliating death, a shameful death, a painful death that didn't bring with it any kind of earthly human glory. And why? Why, why did Jesus do all of this? Because our pride doesn't simply just cause disunity in groups of people or in the church. Our pride separates us from God. Our pride is the root of our sinfulness as human beings. It's when we, when, we, when we reject God's authority, when we reject his glory and say, actually, that belongs to me. I'm the ultimate authority in my life. I deserve glory from others in this world. My life is all about me, and I'm going to decide for myself what is good and evil and right and wrong in ways that serve and benefit me. That's sin. That's the the sinful human condition that every single one of us is plagued with and has been since the fall of Adam and Eve. And that pride, that rejection of God, if we take that to the grave, then we're separated from him for eternity, which is exactly what we've wanted for our entire life. And the only hope in escaping that is if God himself would reach down into our world and rescue us and save us. And that's what he's done in Christ. This is why Jesus became a man. This is why Jesus became a servant. This is why Jesus humbled himself and died. It's to save us from our pride, from our sin, from our selfish ambition, from our conceit, from our attempts at earning glory for ourselves, for all of the times that we have neglected the needs of others and focused on our own needs, for all of the times uh, that we have not thought much or well or anything about the people around us, but only about ourselves. That's why Jesus came to die, was to save us from the very thing that separates us from him and from one another. And all those who are united to him in faith are given a new identity and a new purpose. 
which includes humbly serving others the way that we have been served, not for our glory, glory, but for his. See, unity in Christ is only possible through the humility of Christ, which we all participate in through our service of one another. Uh, there's a preacher in the 18, mid to late 1800s named uh, D.L. Moody. You all may be familiar with the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Uh, Moody started all kinds of schools. He had a really large evangelistic preaching ministry, did a lot of revivals in major cities in the Midwest and the East Coast, and even the United Kingdom and Ireland. He kind of paved the way for men like Billy Graham to preach to lots of big crowds of people and proclaim the gospel and call people to repentance. Uh, he, he, at like the peak of his evangelistic ministry, he preached to, some people would say, crowds of like 25 to 50,000. So these are large crowds of people that are gathering to hear his dynamic preaching and, and proclamation of the gospel. One biographer estimates that through his preaching and writing throughout the course of his ministry, he preached the gospel to over 100 million people. Okay? So this man had a powerful, massive ministry for Christ in proclaiming the name of Jesus to literally millions of people. There's a story about uh, in one of his conferences that he hosted in Northfield, Illinois, some guests from Europe came to the conference. uh, And in Europe, there was this custom where at nighttime, you would put your shoes out in the hallway and a hall servant would come along and scoop up your shoes and shine them and clean them and then put them back uh, at the door for in the morning when you were, or at the next morning, you could grab them and they would be cleaned. That's not a thing in the United States, uh, but they didn't know that. And so the first night of the conference, the European guests left their shoes in the hallway and then went into their room expecting them to be clean. And Dwight Moody saw the shoes, recognized this, brought it to his students' attention at the school that they were at, and they kind of brushed it off and didn't do anything about it. And so uh, Moody went back into the hallways, picked up all of the shoes, and took them back to his room where he cleaned and polished them. And Moody never spoke of this to anyone, uh, and no one would know about this, but a friend of his interrupted him in the middle of the night and saw that he was shining all of the shoes, and then he went on to tell other people about it. So here you have a man who preaches to thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, millions over the course of his ministry. These people traveled from Europe in the 1800s, which isn't like the easiest thing in the world to do, to listen to this man preach. And the night before he preaches, he's not like recrafting all of his jokes or working on the finishing touches of his sermon or getting a good night's rest so that he can be refreshed and rejuvenated to preach to all these people in the morning. In the quiet of the night, in the late hours, he's shining their shoes, taking on the form of a servant to the men who came to listen to him preach. It's just one example in church history, and we could name many more. But imagine If each of us, as individuals and as a church collectively, took the posture of Jesus and men like this, men like Moody, and showed up to serve and not be served. Imagine the unity, the joy we would experience. And like I said, I think we already experienced this. I'm so thankful for the unity and humility that is experienced here at GCC. And all I'm saying is, let's continue that. Let's keep doing that. It's going to provide an incredible and tremendous witness to the world that longs for community, that longs for unity, that longs for deep relationships and fellowship to look at the church and say, wow, I want what they have. How do they get it? And we can say, it's from Jesus. Christ is our motivation. Christ is our model. And so each of us, let's take up the cross of Christ and then serve one another in humility. Let's pray. God, thank you for the display of humility in Christ that we've been recipients of that. 
um, that you've saved us from our pride and our sin, and now we can walk in humility towards one another. God, I pray that now we would worship you in spirit and truth and praise you for these things. Grow us as a community, God. Grow us tighter, tighter knit and deeper in friendship and love for one another because of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.